It's Thursday, November 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Possibly the biggest loser in this election, the polls. Once again, many pollsters and poll analysts got it wrong. Coming into Election Day, it looked like a Biden landslide and a Democratic flip of the Senate. But that didn't happen. Going forward, these polls will need to be re-evaluated and regain the trust of the people. David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for why a failure of the polls threatens our ability to understand what others think outside of these elections. Next, President Trump is mounting several legal challenges in different states. The campaign is calling for a recount in Wisconsin and suing to halt mail-in vote counting in Michigan and Pennsylvania. They are alleging that Trump representatives are not being given enough access to the counting of ballots. Sean Lee, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for these voting legal fights. Finally, an update to an important ballot proposition that we're following out of California. The voters there decided to approve Prop 22, which would allow Uber, Lyft, and other gig economy companies to classify workers as independent contractors instead of employees. Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times, joins us for more on the most expensive ballot prop in history. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The Fox polls are horrible. Every time I have a Fox poll, it's horrible. I mean, I like some of the things on Fox, certainly Sean and Laura. Joining us now is David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks for having me. We are still working through on getting a final result for the presidency of the United States, but there was a clear loser this election time around, and that was polling. It seems that most people got it wrong again, and these are kind of you know scars that we had from 2016, where you know a lot of public opinion polls said Hillary Clinton was going to go all the way, and obviously President Trump won. And this time around, pollsters and, and people that analyze polls said, well, we got it right this time. We added different weights to Trump supporters to make sure they're accounted for. And uh, really kind of all wrong again, at least the way the night was playing out on election night. President Trump was outperforming in a lot of different states. So, David, tell us a little bit about these polls. Can we ever trust them again? And you wrote an article about how it's really just a big catastrophe for democracy. Yeah, I don't know when people will trust these polls again. And I think pollsters are going to look at this and they're going to come through where they got things wrong. And we're going to know a lot more about what went wrong, you know, within a few weeks or maybe months. But even if pollsters are able to fix that, I think there's going to be a real loss of faith in them. And you have people who have been paying a lot of attention to the various analysts who predict this, um, looking at the forecast. And what we see, you know, whether that's the presidential election where a lot of states were off or some of the Senate polls, they just, you know, they missed the result often by several points, not just one or two or three, but five or six or seven. So I think this is way off and people are just not going to return to them in the same way. And I do think that without polls, you know, the great thing about polls is it gives us a sense of what our fellow citizens are thinking. And clearly polls do not do that. So I don't know what we are going to do to be able to get a sense of that without polls that are functional. What do you think is your sense of why pollsters keep getting it wrong? I mean, I just know anecdotally talking to friends and stuff, they say, anytime I get a phone call or something like that, I never answer it. I'll hang up <laughs> right away. So is it just maybe people aren't responding to polls in the same way? I've heard other people say, well, people are just lying to pollsters. What do you think is the overall sense of why we're getting it wrong so much? Those are definitely part of it. Like people are not answering the phone the same way. And there are other ways that pollsters are polling, whether that's online or other things, but it's not always as reliable. 
I think some people are lying to pollsters while they don't know if that makes a difference. You know, a lot of the problem is that these polls rely on projections of what the electorate will look like and who's actually going to turn out. And it seems like maybe in some cases, the pollsters just missed that. They misjudged how many people would turn out and which people would turn out. And the result is they were off. I think we're going to have to get a better sense, again, over time of, of what the problems were here. But I think the, you know, the overall damage to credibility of polls is done no matter what we learn about the specifics of the errors. Tell me a little bit more about how the polls figure into what we use them for, because polls have become really central to political coverage. I mean, we're, we're constantly relying on updates from new pollsters. And, uh, you know, as the election cycle continues, we're, we're hanging on every little update that we can get from these. This has been going for a while, but I think really since 2008 and the rise of 538, this has become an important thing. And in some ways, when you get these missed polls on elections, it's mostly it's a source of stress and makes people freak out. But of course, we have the election that really determines who people are going to vote for ultimately. But we use polls for all kinds of things to determine, you know, what people's views are on a lot of important issues and for policymakers to understand where the country is and for us to really understand our neighbors and know what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And that's the thing that I think is the real problem, because there's no alternative to that. You know, we don't have an election that can resolve those questions. So we're really sort of flying blind about what our neighbors think, especially at a time when Americans are sorting themselves ideologically. They live with people who agree with them. Their partners are people who agree with them. Their families agree with them. The people they work with agree with them. So it's even harder to know what your neighbors, you know, what other Americans are thinking, especially in a pandemic when everyone's locked down. Just to echo that sentiment right now, we're constantly seeing polls about people not wanting to take first-generation vaccines once they're approved. For whatever reason, they're either politicized or they just don't believe in vaccines and whatnot. That number was hovering around 60% for a while. So what if that's wrong, too? <laughs> I mean, what if there is this overwhelming sense that people do want to get it? I mean, now this throws into yeah. question a lot of different things. And it really is unfortunate. I do tend to agree with you about how it's tough that if we're relying on this so much and it's not telling us the truth, then it just sows a lot of this extra kind of distrust in, in media and all of this stuff. I mean, we think we know how voters feel about things like mask wearing or about how their governors are handling the pandemic. But now, I, you know, I kind of doubt that. I don't know whether I can believe those stories and whether they're accurate. And that makes it hard for me as a journalist to understand what's going on in the country. And I think it makes it harder for the public to understand what's going on in places other than their specific town as well. What do pollsters do now? How do they get back? How do they gain that trust? What can they do different? Like I said, this time around, they were trying to weight President Trump's supporters a little heavier just because in case they didn't respond to these polls. So what do they do now? Yeah, I think it's a two part answer. Like one of them is to figure out what specifically went wrong. And I think that's going to take a while as we sort of plow through more data and, and look for the problems. You know, the second question is credibility. And I think that's something that you can only build up with time. Pulsers are going to have to figure out where they went wrong and, and sort of get better at calling these races and just convince people that they know what they're doing again. I do think that we might see less emphasis on places like 538 or, or the New York Times Upshot or The Economist or all these places that forecast elections. And, you know, what they'll say is they're only as good as the polls that come in. But if those polls are a problem, I think that's going to be a problem. People may not want to rely so heavily on, uh, on a source that has not necessarily led them down the right path in yeah. the past. David Graham, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It goes against the most basic principles of our democracy. It takes away the right of every American citizen to cast their vote and to choose our leaders. Joining us now is Sean Lee, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Nice to be here. 
wanted to talk about some of the lawsuits that are going to be going around. Obviously, we're still waiting for everybody to call the presidential elections. It's a little too close to call. It seemed that Joe Biden has won in Wisconsin, but the Trump campaign said that they want to have a recount there. The Trump campaign also said they're planning to halt vote counting in Michigan. They said they were denied access to view openings of ballots. And we know there's already some lawsuits in Pennsylvania. There might be a couple other ones from the Trump campaign. But, Sean, tell us about these lawsuits and specifically Pennsylvania. What do we know that's going on there? There's been two lawsuits that have held hearings today. One may still actually be underway in Harrisburg. That is brought by a Pennsylvania representative, and they're trying to basically get a judge to block counties from allowing voters to cast a provisional ballot if their mail-in ballot was defective or, um, you know, wrong or rejected in some way. So that hearing is happening now in Harrisburg. And then in the morning in Philadelphia, there was a separate lawsuit brought by Pennsylvania Republicans essentially to block officials in Montgomery County. So the county officials, basically, they manually review ballots that they receive before Election Day. And if there's anything defective about them, like there's no signature on the outside envelope or the inside envelope, the secrecy envelope is missing, which they can actually tell without opening the envelope. Sometimes like the scanning machine can tell that the ballot is underweight or they can just see the ballot through the envelope. So they know the secrecy envelope is missing. So they'll try to notify voters before Election Day. So they can come in and fix that mistake. So essentially, the plaintiffs, the Pennsylvania Republicans in this case, are trying to get those votes disqualified. And on the defendant side, it's the Democratic National Committee. They've sent lawyers to help the county officials. And they're saying that essentially that this is just patent ploy to disenfranchise voters, that nothing in the election code forbids officials from contacting voters about ballots before Election Day to fix problems. And that voters aren't allowed to actually change the ballots just to come in and they call it cure the ballot to fix whatever problem that there is. And that the county officials have been doing this for years and years and years and both the Republican and Democratic parties know that this has been going on. In uh, Pennsylvania in particular, we already kind of expected that the vote count would take a long time. State officials Mm -hmm. said that they wouldn't really complete everything until Friday. They have special rules there that Mm -hmm. if a mail-in ballot is postmarked by the day, but they have all the way until Friday to actually get in so they can be counted. And part of this other thing that you were saying, you know, to cure those ballots, you know, they have all the way until Friday to do that. So obviously there's a lot of contention around that. Tell us a little bit about how many mail-in ballots we're looking at, because we know this time around, obviously, mail-in balloting was just huge across the country. But in Pennsylvania specifically, too, I mean, it's millions. I think there's like a million votes still yet to be counted, but just the numbers were just huge. Right. And you can actually see sort of in terms of the breakdown of the Biden voters and Trump voters so far for in-person votes for Biden. I think it's something about a little over 57% of the votes for Biden have been in-person votes and the rest have been mail-in ballots. And then for Trump, it's been over 90% in-person voting versus you know a little under 10% for mail-in ballots. So there's a huge disparity in you know which voters are mailing in ballots and which voters are standing in line or were standing in line on Tuesday or beforehand to vote in person. So the interesting thing is for the case of the Montgomery County, the mail-in ballots, it only applies to 93 ballots. So they found about 2,700 defective or possibly defective ballots, but only 93 ballots were 
the voter was notified that something was potentially wrong with their ballot and they actually came in and fixed it. So that's only 93 ballots. And there was a funny moment when the chief clerk of the county said, you know, it's 93 ballots. We have it sequestered. And he said, we have it in a locked cabinet in a locked room under 24 hour surveillance. And it was just kind of a surreal moment, you know, at the courthouse when he said this. But the more important thing is that I think depending on if the judge sides with the plaintiffs, it could set a precedent for other counties in Pennsylvania to raise similar challenges against mail-in ballots and allowing voters to come in and like cure the ballot, right? Um, maybe challenges to disqualify those ballots. And then, you know, on a broader level, you mentioned other legal challenges being brought around the country that could also factor in. But definitely, I think here in Pennsylvania, other counties are watching what happens in Montgomery County. Sean Lee, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So I feel like with AB5, we have the leverage, legal leverage, to be able to unionize, feed our families, you know what I mean? Move forward in life. Prop 22 is a half-assed effort to address driver concerns. You know what I mean? It's a half-assed, low-ball effort to trick people into accepting a new bail minimum for society. Joining us now is Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Taryn. Thanks for asking me to come on. No problem. You know, we're following all sorts of races across the country for Election Day. One of the more interesting things that we're following out of California was Proposition 22. This was the big fight between ride-sharing companies like Uber and Lyft to basically continue classifying their workers as independent contractors rather than employees. There was another bill passed called Assembly Bill 5 that said you had to make them employees, and it was going to change all sorts of things. So it was a big fight. It was the most expensive ballot measure in uh, California history is what I see, and it passed with 58% of the vote. So, Taryn, tell us how this whole thing played out. Um, I mean, it starts, I guess, you can look at AB5 as one place, but even before that, the California Supreme Court adopted a new way to consider whether workers should be independent contractors or official employees of a company. And it paved the way for AB5. So the California legislature in 2019 adopted AB5. And that, again, like you mentioned, posed some threats to this app-based economy with, you know, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and some of the others really worried about how it could affect their business model. So out of that, there were some attempts to get an exemption by the company, so to work with the legislature and try to negotiate a way for them to be able to keep uh, their employees as independent contractors. Those negotiations didn't materialize and didn't work out. And so then you saw these companies turn to the ballot. And one of the most striking things about this measure is the amount of money that they put into it. Again, you talk about, you know, a California record. It's also a U.S. record. There's $204 million at last count. And, you know, that's a lot of money. So they were able to connect with voters in ways also that we haven't really seen before. You know, they connected via traditional advertisements, but then things like in-app advertisements and communications to their customers and their drivers. So, you know, it was, a, it was you know, kind of a, a new paradigm shift in California. Right. And we're talking about the biggest companies in all of this. Uber and Lyft get a lot of the name recognition, but DoorDash, Postmates, Instacart were also all part of this. And as you mentioned, you know, if you opened up your app throughout this whole election cycle, you would get a notification, you know, saying, 
Prop 22, know the facts about it, all that stuff. So it was definitely this kind of direct messaging with the voters out there. So what does Prop 22 actually do? Because it's going to let them still be independent contractors, but it is going to provide other protections for them. Right. It allows them to remain independent contractors and have the flexibility that comes with that in terms of their work schedules, you know, kind of turning on the app when you want to. It also provides benefits to some extent, but a lesser set of benefits than they would have gotten under AB5. Part of what the opposition argued with that is that a lot of the time, the hours are gauged on when you are driving to pick up a ride. So once you accept a ride, you drive to it, and then you're either driving, dropping somebody off, or dropping off a delivery. So there's a lot of hours in between or time in between when you're waiting that isn't calculated towards, you know, those hourly wage requirements and the other benefits that were offered under the proposition. So you do get some benefits, but again, not quite what you would have gotten otherwise. Yeah, it says, I guess they're receiving like a stipend to purchase health insurance coverage. And it depends. You got to at least drive 15 hours a week. I guess that stipend grows if you're working 25 hours or more a week. But you're right, there's this little downtime in between where you're not getting credit for all of that. And then, you know, what if you work 25 hours one week, then you don't another week? So these averages, I guess, is where you're playing with. You're playing with that. And then there's some studies that say a lot of workers wouldn't qualify for these benefits. And so there's the opportunity for the benefits, but it's unclear at this point for us to know exactly how many people will have access to those. So Prop 22 makes exemptions now for these gig app workers. AB5 is still in effect, though. Who does that cover now? AB5 covers many industries that were not included in exemption. So different industries came and made the case to the legislature as why AB5 shouldn't apply to their business model. And in some of those instances, they were granted exemptions and others they were not. So it's a wide range of companies that would have to apply to AB5, which Uber and Lyft would have largely been required to unless they hadn't pushed this measure in one. And for Uber and Lyft and all these other companies, they were saying that obviously the drivers want the flexibility to determine their own schedules. But Customers would have also faced higher prices because of everything that comes with having an employee, all the health insurance and all that stuff. And even the California Legislative Analyst Office said that these protections and benefits make about 20 percent of an employee's cost for companies. So there could possibly have been increases in the cost of services for customers and all that. So, I mean, there's a lot at play with all of this. There is a lot at play in this. And to some agree, it would make sense that if you're having to hire people full time, you wouldn't be able to have as much flexibility and you would want to keep people in areas where you can guarantee there would be work, right? So in some rural areas or smaller cities, it might not make sense for the companies to staff employees out there to be available and to pick up these rides. So for that, in terms of that, it makes sense why we would see some of these service be limited to different areas in terms of, you know, the flexibility to determine your own schedules. You know, it's, again, a question of whether of demand and supply and wanting to make sure that they have people available to pick up rides, but not wanting to put so many people on the job at a time that, you know, it doesn't make sense to pay these workers full time if they're not actually driving. So it would have created some challenges for the companies to overcome. But again, you know, AB5 didn't do any of that in and of itself. It more would have been the company's reaction to AB5 and what they would have had to do to kind of sustain their business model. Taryn Luna, reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.